This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And my thanks to Monique for the last three hours of Out on the Patio and a reminder that uh, OOTP, as we call it here, uh, will be back between four and seven on a Wednesday afternoon. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, the internet, net neutrality, all of the uh, curly topics um, that are out there on a Wednesday night. Um, tonight uh, on the show, um, we could have a horse between us. Um, Dan McGanty, how are you tonight? Yeah, not too bad. How are you, Warren? Pretty well. Have you ever? How are you with horse riding? Uh, horse riding? Uh, I never do it. I've never done it. But mm. in my head, I'm a pro. I'm, I could win the Melbourne Cup. Oh, great! Yeah. Maybe next time we do a show together, we'll get a horse. Yeah. See how it goes. Sounds good. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. I'll be with you also. And uh, we do have a uh, house DJ tonight um, who will be the silent producer. Um, and we'll see how that goes a little bit later. Um, Lizzie O'Shea um, is an Australian human rights lawyer, broadcaster and writer um, who does a bit of living in London, but um, she also gets back to Melbourne from time to time. Uh, I think we bumped into her at Melbourne Knowledge last week um, when we are doing our, uh, our show thing. And she's been doing some um, book writing um, and she's very interested in the, I guess, the politics and history of digital technology. Um, she spoke a little bit about topics around that um, at Melbourne Knowledge Week and she's got another event coming up soon so uh, we'll catch up with her um, a little bit later on in the show. Uh, Before that, um, Brooke Maggs is a narrative designer um, who's, well, it's maybe a job that you didn't get um, advice on from your career guidance counsellor at school, um, but there are narrative designers out there. Um, so if you're curious about what that is, um, we'll be having a chat with Brooke in a little while. She's uh, also a writer and researcher based in Melbourne. Um, anything else to add about Brooke? Is that um, a fair description? Yeah, she's uh, part of the Women in Games Fellowship and has recently returned from Finland where she was uh, mm. doing um, some work with Remedy Entertainment. Oh, cool. Yes. We'll check into that um, in a few minutes. But before we get there, there is a, a bit of news um, to talk about. Um, one of the things that we've been following on the show for uh, quite some time now is net neutrality, and there's been some developments there, Dan. Yeah, um, so net neutrality is set to expire on June 11th. Um, The landmark rules which were implemented by uh, Obama's administration um, in 2015, uh, uh, yeah, set to end uh, June 11th, uh, which means that um, it gives broader powers to uh, providers who are able to um, prioritise higher payers and giving fast and slow lanes. Um, The new rules uh, require that the uh, providers tell consumers uh, whether they will block or slow content um, and offer those fast, those paid fast lanes. Um, it's a huge win for the um, providers like Comcast, Verizon, um, AT&T. Um, and, uh, there, but there are still um, 22 states that are fighting back um, and trying to um, beat the um, repeals, uh, trying to keep net neutrality the way they are with the, the rules in place. Yeah, there's an interesting quote from uh, Barbara Underwood, um, who's the um, acting New York Attorney General. Um, She said, the repeal of net neutrality would allow internet uh, service providers to put their profits before the consumers they serve and control what we see, do and say online. Um, So, yeah, it is a a dark day um, for the internet. Also, Um, yeah, Jit Pai, who's uh, the much maligned on the internet, um, has said the the rules would not harm consumers, although everyone appears to be very sceptical about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think um, uh, I think we'll find that is um, far from the case. Yes. But we'll um, we'll keep you posted on that. Um, one of the things that's also um, a little disappointing, um, you might recall on the show a couple of weeks back, we talked about um, the departure of a couple of key roles um, within the um, cybersecurity team um, under um, President Trump. Um, so they've actually decided um, for the two roles that were recently um, uh, vacated to um, scrap the positions, um, which is disappointing. Um, there's been some stuff that's come out today. Someone actually said um, it's kind of like get rid of, getting rid of the Navy um, after Pearl Harbor, um, kind of uh, uh, a moot point really. But um, yeah, disappointing to see that um, Rob Joyce and um, oh, the name of the other person escapes me right now, um, who did such a good job um, in, I guess, flagging uh, Russia's involvement in the election and um, being on the front foot about um, exposing um, weaknesses and, um, uh, I guess, situations that put um, not just Americans but people around the world um, at risk. Um, They're doing a very good job but um, won't be replaced, which is disappointing. Yeah, right. And also a HTC is working on a blockchain phone. <gasps> so if you haven't got enough Stocking blockchain... Stocking filler for this year, yeah. that's great. Uh, so if you haven't got your fill of blockchain just yet, you can uh, now purchase a HTC blockchain phone. Um, you may ask, how is it blockchain involved? Well, it's involved in the security and cryptocurrency support. So on release, it will support Bitcoin and Ethereum. So I, I don't know. I'm not really sure that's a blockchain phone per se. Yeah. Maybe that's a bit of spin. Yeah, it's um, two currencies it does not a blockchain make, I guess. No. Um, yeah, I guess um, I would have been interested to see if it had more application in its kind of OS or something yeah, like that. Yeah, rather than just the, cur- the currency because it's, it's um, yeah, just in, in its infancy stages and we're yet to see what blockchain can do and it's everyone seems to just be focusing on the cryptocurrency aspect of it. Mm. Interesting though, I guess um, uh, it might make other uh, manufacturers um, think more about what they can do yeah, absolutely. and um, hopefully we'll see some um, one person up and chip there. Um, yeah, I, I came across an um, interesting thing today around um, um, legislation and um, AI. So um, there's a, a person, uh, Bradford Newman, um, who writes for TechCrunch. Um, who about three years ago um, suggested we do actually need a uh, stronger approach to regulation of artificial intelligence um, and sort of um, suggested there's a number of reasons why. Uh, I guess probably the the two most common are technology is getting away from us and we're doing a a lot of things that we don't understand the ongoing social and and legal implications for. Um, But also we are... um, I don't want to sound like a scaremonger because I think we, we've talked about the future of work before on the show and it's not necessarily a bad thing um, to automate some things that people just shouldn't be doing anyway. We can get on and work on better things, um, find more time to do things that we value, etc. But a McKinsey study from uh, late last year suggested up to um, 800 million people can will be sort of technologically redundant um, in, um, by 2030, um, they believed. So... AI is um, both designing and fulfilling a lot of functions that, um, you know, used to be our hands and our feet and sort of our minds. Um, And we don't actually have a lot of um, uh, oversight over um, the laws and the 
um, the um, commercial practices that we need to kind of lock down um, around these things at the moment. Um, so um, Bradford was suggesting that there's probably a few things. Um, it was from a kind of cross the Atlantic kind of um, view on things, but was suggesting we do need uh, a chief AI officer. It was interesting in um, Australia when um, the sort of democratization of data started and we started seeing sort of like um, digital transformation officers and chief digital officers appearing. Um, we might find now that um, in the future we might have a head of AI or an AI officer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I think it's something that definitely needs to be uh, regulated and looked into. If, um, if uh, the Terminator is a um, prophecy, then uh, definitely needs to be kept in consideration. And I know I grew up with that and I'm very sceptical about AI, but it's it's got so many great advances, uh, helped with so many advances in technology for us that um, it needs to just be, um, I think, dealt with a steady hand. Mm. Also suggesting that under this general banner of we need um, better legislation and regulation um, is um, IP around AI or AIAP um, is not currently um, well documented. Um, there's not a lot of protection for people who invest their time and effort um, in this space. So it's also a little bit grey as to kind of where um, uh, where, inter uh, where intellectual property starts and finishes uh, around a lot of these very complex systems and, and I guess um, um, uh, services and um, businesses, etc. But yeah, um, there's also some thoughts here about um, ownership, infringement, misappropriation uh, around AI. But we might put a link up on the um, on the socials um, about um, that particular piece. It is uh, a pretty good read. It is 16 past seven here on Triple R. This is Bite Into It with Dan and Warren. And right now we're interviewing uh, Brooke Maggs, who is a narrative designer and is working on two hotly anticipated Australian games, uh, Paperbark and The Gardens Between. Brooke, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. No problem. Um, so you've recently just gotten back from Finland from working with Remedy Entertainment. Can you tell us about your experiences uh, over there? Yes, it was a wonderful experience. So it's a part of the Women in Games Fellowship grant by Film Victoria who give uh, you know women money to advance their career in games. So I chose to do that by um, going to larger studios overseas where, you know, we don't have studios of that size making games of that size with narratives of that size. So being able to be on the ground in the studio and seeing how a team of writers work on a large project was um, awesome. It was, it was so great um, with the level of, you know, professionalism going on basically, but because... Um, here, you know, what I do is a lot of freelance work with smaller teams where I will be the narrative specialist, be the narrative person. Um, so it was a pleasure to have other story people to work with there and get to see um, the impact, you know, of the narrative on a game project um, in terms of, you know, um, uh, how narrative can inform, you know, game design and vice versa, but also how it can impact lines so of a script for example if you know you have to consider um actors and translation and all kinds of things that you know happen on large scale games but that also happen on small scale games too so getting to work with that level of professionals you know was an amazing experience it's, it sounds great what um what was probably the biggest lesson takeaway from your time there oh 
my biggest takeaway was probably, you know, um, I have been, I have learnt a lot already, but there's also more that I can learn. Um, I think, you know, having um, other people to bounce ideas off, not only in the narrative department, but on a larger team means that you can do larger scale creative things. Um, you know, Remedy for a while um, have their own costume designer, you know, and I've never worked on a games team with a costume designer before. I think people would be surprised that there is a costume designer and a games team, but, you know, how the narrative feeds into that was really interesting and also... Um, getting a chance to work as a narrative designer there for a while because I thought, you know, perhaps I would just be observing. But Remedy was really inclusive. They gave me a desk, they set me up, they said, you know, let's go, we're, we're going to get into it. So they let me um, have, have creative input, which was lovely too. Brooke, it's um, Warren here. Um, can I ask, when you have a, a bigger team of writers, um, how do you keep a, a story on track? Like, surely you have more opportunities and there's, like, you know, subplots and the narratives can kind of twist. How do you, how do you stay focused? Or is oh, that, does that even um, matter? Oh, it does, absolutely, yes. Um, so, you know, everyone, um, I guess, works to do that specifically um, but, you know, lots of documentation, <laughs> but also, um, you know, we have, you know, a story Bible, regardless of what kind of game you're working on, you know, having that as the go-to text for what is and isn't true of the narrative. Also, there's a script if, if it's a game that requires a script, but the narrative person, you know, the role of the narrative designer is to advocate for the story across many disciplines. So. You know, I had to, I guess, make sure it's, it's my job to absorb the story and then all the changes to the story and, and communicate that verbally if we don't have time to document right away um, or, or things are still in flux. Just a so, geeky, know, geeky question on that. What's a, what's a story Bible? A story Bible is a, is a document. It's like it could be a big Word document that basically has all the story more, you know, character profiles. It might have descriptions about the different levels or worlds in the game. Um, it basically is the, the tome of you know, everything that is mm. true of the story from characters to world to, um, to plot to, uh, yeah, all of those things. And you're um, seeing as it's a, another completely different country and different cultures, did you get any takeaways or did you, um, were you influenced by their culture and were, were you able to influence uh, their studio in any way? Um, Tim Tams, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. So uh, I unfortunately forgot to bring um, any kind of Vegemite or Tim Tams, which was uh, really re remiss of me, I know. Bad ambassador. As soon, as soon as I landed in the studio, I was introduced to licorice, like salty licorice, um, sweets, which is a big Finnish thing, apparently. <laughs> so that was the test. It's like how we thrust Vegemite at people as soon as they get into the country. That was like the one thing um, there. But I think also um, like uh, being, I guess, a driven and, and person who's worked in smaller teams, I'm used to the multidisciplinary nature of working games. So I think that was perhaps to my advantage, whereas when you work in a larger studio, you get to be more focused on your own role and, and exactly, you know, what you're doing. So I've done, you know, some production in my time as well and, and things like that, but um, I think there's definitely merits to, to working in both ways. So it was <laughs> less nice about... To be able to focus on one thing and... 
um, yeah. Yeah, so, so it was less about the, the the country of origin and more the size of the team. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, and, I mean, in terms of the country of origin, um, Remedy has a very awesome finishization program for expat people at the company. Um, so they we went to the Nukaso National Park as a way to see the finished landscape and snowshoed through there, which was probably one of the highlights, I'd say. So Remedy goes to great lengths to, you know, make sure people, you know, get to do Finnish cultural activities outside of work because the majority of the studio, or a lot of them, maybe I think 30% are expats from many different countries, which was also very cool, I have to say. Like, it was a very, um, you know, multicultural environment as well. That's awesome. That's not something you uh, expect when you hear uh, people working in video games going snowshoeing. But um, yeah, <laughs> no, sounds great. No, it was, they're very lovely people. Yeah. It was amazing. And um, you got this through the uh, film Victoria. What what other kinds of um, uh, programs and uh, offers do they um, can you apply for? Oh well, uh, Film Victoria offer. Um, so the Women in Games Fellowship, they also offer grants to game projects to help get them off the ground. They offer grants uh, for games releases, you know, to help get them out the door. Um, and also um, for marketing as well, you know, for, for games teams to put some money into promoting their work here and overseas. Um, so we are pretty lucky in Victoria to have Film Victoria as a funding body and as um, you know, an organisation that actively, you know, supports and nurtures, you know, art and games and the games community, um, as well as film and TV. So, yeah, they have a bunch of different things. Hmm. I'm really interested in how you came to be a, a narrative designer. It's not a... Um, you don't meet heaps of them at the tram stop every morning. Um, what, what's what's some of your journey into, into um, being a narrative designer? How, how did you end up there? Ah, oh, well... Um, Landing, I mean, I started doing, uh, way back when, did a multimedia degree at RMIT thinking I wanted to be a web designer mm. and then did an in-business learning uh, unit and quickly realised that's not what I wanted to do, but <laughs> what I wanted to do was story. So um, I studied creative writing and did lots of writing um, and also my background's in teaching at Swinburne Uni, teaching in the games course there, which naturally, I guess, by hook or by crook led me to working in games and, and being able to um, make a living out of that. So it's not really a very direct, you know, constructive, here's the roadmap, <laughs> how, to, how to do it. But um, I think as I've worked over time too, I've been lucky to work with teams that have let me try things out and take on things I didn't necessarily have a lot of experience in and, and built my... Um, my practical skills and knowledge that way as well as the theoretical knowledge that I had from teaching games um, so that's sort of how I learnt about game design because we would make board games in class and things like that which have a lot of the same underpinnings so um, that was really great too so it was a very piecemeal kind of way to, to get into games um, and you know have stayed at the since. <laughs> so, so what advice would you give to someone who's trying to um be a writer or or another narrative designer in video games. 
Oh, well, I would say definitely do lots of writing, which is funny because that's the advice that I got when I went and met the writers of Bioshock. They said, be a writer. And I, I found that to be not super helpful until I realised what they meant was learn the craft of writing. You know, there are many video games writers and professionals who have English literature degrees, for example. You know, the way that we build story and what inherently interests us is in story is pretty ubiquitous, I think. But how you tell it is different across platforms. Um, you can also, you know, download Twine, which is a free interactive narrative tool to get a feel for what it's like to write branching narratives and, and choices. Um, I actually have, um, I'm, I'm helping run a games writers course called um, at theplottwist.com where we're taking applications from writers from other disciplines um, to teach them games writing. Um, so that's another way you could go to uh, ICTA meetups and meet the games community um, and yeah make make some games um, <laughs> is another one so yeah there are many even if you're a writer of no programming technical background it's still possible to make narrative text games and they help you understand what it's like to write a play experience as opposed to you know, a, a more passive viewing experience or reading experience, I suppose. Mm. Brooke, do, do you think we make narrative-driven games here in Australia or are they kind of character-driven or genre-based kind of or do, do we make good stories in Melbourne and, and across Australia? I think so. I mean, I've, I think more and more... Um, I mean, there are so many different types of games being made in Australia, I should say that, um, mm. and highlight that. But, um, for example, the ones that I've been working on have, have a narrative to them um, that are very good, I may say. Um, so, for example, Florence is a game that just came out that you can get your hands on um, that I consulted on, which is a beautiful short story. Um, and I think more and more, you know, we have game studios in Australia that have IPs to amazing <laughs> franchises like Battlestar Galactica, and those narrative-driven games have been pretty great. Um, so, yes, there are, um, but there, there aren't heaps of them. You know, there aren't your Assassin's Creed's uh, anymore. There, there used to be um, some studios, for example, L.A. Noire was made here and we had a hand in Bioshock and things like that. So um, I would like to say there, there, is, there are and there hopefully will be more. And you work on, uh, you've worked on a game or are working, currently working on a game, um, The Gardens Between. Um, yeah. That um, story doesn't have any dialogue or, um, <laughs> and very minimal writing in it. How, what are the yeah. challenges in writing for a game without dialogue? Well, I guess, um, first of all, I would say is communicating that story in every other way except for text or speech to the player but probably first of all for us it was communicating it internally and to ourselves and what we wanted to say and and be very clear because um we don't have you know text to lean on so you know, we've you know, jonathan swanson's our art director and w the game was recently nominated for an independent games festival awards for its art so it's very visually strong and it uses color music um, tone, sound, you know, the, the game mechanics to, to tell a story um, about these two uh, kids and their friendship. Um, and that was the challenge initially, was finding a plot structure that communicated well in a game context. So um, because this game is 
relaxing. It doesn't, you can't die, you don't earn points, you don't collect anything. You're going through using time to solve puzzles. Um, and so we knew time was a, was a theme that we needed to play on and so relevant for, you know, young, having young characters. So communicating those themes to ourselves and being clear about that and then, you know, um, I guess hitting those narrative points all the way through so that they're clear was the challenge. Oh, awesome. Um, Brooke, thanks so much for talking to us tonight about narrative design and how to construct a narrative for video games. Um, You're most welcome. Thank uh, you very much for having me. It was great. No problem. Um, yeah, thanks for being a great guest. Um, you can catch uh, Paperbark and The Guns Between uh, coming up uh, very shortly, being released very shortly, both games. Uh, Lizzie O'Shea uh, is an Australian human rights lawyer, broadcaster and writer um, living uh, over in London, um, but she is currently here and in our studio because she's been doing heaps of interesting things. Uh, she's writing a book on the politics and history of digital technology and she talked about some of those themes at uh, Melbourne Knowledge Week um, last week and she's got another event coming up soon. Um, Lizzie, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. So, I did miss the talk last week, which... Oh, you're um, forgiven. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll redeem myself somehow. Um, it was about um, what's wrong with tech utopias and do we control tech or, or does tech control us? What did you guys learn or find out last week? Well, what I was talking about was a bit about one of the chapters in my book, which is coming out next year. So I look at the history of technological utopianism, which is a movement that had um, a bunch of thinkers and writers uh, talking about this issue in the late 19th century. And I think they were trying to use technology as a way to escape the kind of grime and smoke of the industrial revolution mm. and to imagine society to be different. But the focus is on optimising technology, which can often be uh, a way of avoiding problems of politics and the distribution of power. And so I think we have a lot to learn from the kinds of mistakes and the kinds of excitement that uh, technological utopianism in the 19th century evoked in the 21st century, because I think we're going through another period in which we are focusing very heavily on the optimization of technology at the expense of talking about social political problems um, and how technology might improve some of them, but also its limitations. And particularly having a look at how technology develops and that it's currently developing um, in a, a framework that prioritizes using technology to make money, which has all sorts of impacts then on what's possible and also how we use it as uh, consumers. Mm. Well, what were some of the problems that they had during the Industrial Revolution that they thought technology would be able to solve? Well, all sorts of things. It's really interesting reading back uh, at some of these texts. They would talk about how um, they, they were. It didn't actually sound that much fun, I have to tell you. Um, they, they would talk about how you know waste was not an issue anymore. That um, domestic labour was minimised. But they would talk very uh, determinedly about how idleness was a terrible disgrace, and that everybody had to work very hard. And that in fact, some of them um, talked about developing an enormous world corporation with where the whole of society was just a giant corporation. Mm. And, and so you'd sort of see a little bits and pieces, a lot of them, some of them were associated with um, eugenics as well. Mm. So you see the bits and pieces of designing a society from scratch using principles of engineering and prioritising engineers as the people to do that. Mm. Um, and then ultimately they would talk about dispensing with democracy, uh, that voting is silly. Why would you do that when you could put in charge the people who were the most technologically equipped to make decisions about society? So it's not uniform in its views, but you can see how these things 
kind of line up into a, an ideology mm. of sorts and that it, it stems from prioritising the development of technology in a specific format rather than saying, well, there might be reasons why people experience poverty or there is mm. oppression and discrimination. Maybe we have to talk about what we can do about those things in the here and now rather than just focusing on optimising technology to try and solve those issues. Well, it's probably not an either-or thing, isn't it? Like, you have no. to take a holistic approach to, to what's going on. That's definitely true. But I also see in the here and now just the way in which technology is so limited in how it develops that there is, in fact, a lot of different possibilities that are being ignored. You know, there's that famous quote from that guy who used to work at Facebook in the early days where he talks all the, about how all the best minds of my generation are designing ads and that that sucks. And mm. I think there is something in that. Why are the people that are um, coming up with bright ideas corralled into working at big tech companies and making them lots of money. Maybe mm. we should think about how we could redesign how people work with technology and collaborate with community organisations and groups in society who are struggling to be heard and help them uh, use technology to try and change that power dynamic rather than uh, just fitting it into a format of, of profit making. Heavy kind of lunchtime topics, really, <laughs> weren't they? <laughs> well, I'm, my book does deal with it in a hopefully more entertaining way, but um, I think some of these issues are really pressing, especially in 21st um, century society, where we really valorise some of these people as being uh, ways to es escape the problems of society. Like, I, I, you know, I just can't stand people like Elon Musk, who is seen as this great hero uh, that will save us from climate change by starting a colony on Mars. And I just sort of hate to think what kind yeah. of colony he would design on Mars. And I also hate the idea of um, Mark Zuckerberg being somebody who says, oh, we should move fast and break things, which implies that someone else is going to pick up the pieces, you know. It's, it's not going to be Mark Zuckerberg, except we now see that, that people don't really accept that anymore in the way that they used to. And in mm. fact, they're starting to try and hold companies accountable for the kind of damage that they do and ask questions about what alternatives might be possible. Mm. So extreme, extreme performance at all costs. Yeah. Well, is that how you classify Mark Zuckerberg? I suppose. Oh well, we'll move fast and break things. Yes. Like it's not it's not the process and it's not inclusive development. That's it's right. kind of yes. um the the A in the A B test wins regardless of who was working on B. And That's what it true. Means for them. And also that consequences are something that you're not necessarily responsible for, that you should put, ship the code straight away if there's a problem you can iterate later mm. rather than what kind of problems are we baking into design here? What kind of power dynamics are we um, are we approving or cementing in the way that we design products that might, might warrant greater reflection before we proceed? Mm. So are you seeing a societal understanding of how technology is changing and... Um, whether people actually want it to slow down, they want to see um, uh, spread out uh, development of technology to help us in all aspects, is, or is it just the tech giants who are concerned or people who are involved in tech that are concerned about this kind of stuff? Well, I think it's uh, both. Like, I think uh, there is growing civil society around this space calling into question uh, whether products like Facebook are actually serving the social purpose that they claim to. I mean, they there's a view, I think, that people genuinely believe who work at Facebook that they're connecting people and that that's a noble mission. And that's increasingly, I think, not washing with the general population. So it's a very widespread view that this kind of technology is actually quite harmful and has limited that we might want to consider more carefully before allowing it to take over huge parts of our mm. online, online lives. Hello to Ben Finney, if you're listening tonight. We did talk about this last week. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Um, but then I also think what's interesting, or the other reason why I, th I think I'm here to talk to you guys is about how we see within companies themselves, um, I think a growing politicisation of people who work with technology who say, well, maybe we might want to rethink how this, uh, this process of design works. How can we uh, work with uh, marginalised 
marginalised communities to make sure they're included in the process? And how can we uh, bring a critical mind as people who work with technology to discussing the politics of it as well? Um, and that can take the form of, you know, generalised kind of organising, but it can also take the form, I think, of unionism. Organising as workers within companies does, I think, start to alert you to the kind of power dynamics involved in how you make something in an organisation. And with technology, that obviously has very broad implications for society. So it's an important, I think, step to take. Mm. Do Australian um, tech and design workers have traditionally a, a strong relationship with organising or kind of advocating for their own rights? And um, I, I wouldn't describe it as particularly strong. There's certainly unions that operate in this space, one of which is the Australian Services Union. The other one is the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance for design workers. And they're certainly making efforts. But um, the general trend in unionism has been a decline in membership. And this is also a new industry. So I think there is an opportunity there to talk to people who work in the industry about joining a union, what the role of a union is, because you may have not um, been in a union before, or, or you may have had a different kind of experience with a union working in different kind of work or a different industry. So I think there's real merit in discussing um, the role that a union can play in improving your own conditions. I think there's a widespread view that technology workers are very well paid. They're the problem often they're causing gentrification you know we love to hate how they're ruining san francisco well that's the ideas people have in their minds and i I reckon we need to debunk that because there's a lot of people who work in the industry who really struggle um and to have good grounds for getting together and working on trying to improve their industrial conditions And there's a lot of work that you can do i also think people where workers are powerful that's a really good place to organize because a rising tide can lift all boats and you can Mm. start to reimagine what's possible in the workplace what kind of rights are possible by leading with the people who are in powerful positions or in a demand industry who are not at risk of being automated, for example, which Mm. technology workers are much less likely to be in that situation. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it's really important to talk about unionism amongst workers, even if traditionally it's not been a stronghold of the union movement for a variety of obvious reasons. Mm. I think I did read somewhere recently that the average average income at Facebook for employees is around 235,000 US. Goodness me. You know, I, I read the other day as well, the average AFL football player's salary in the men's league is mm. 300 and something, 321, I think it was. Mm. They've got a very strong players association. That was <laughs> yeah, a negotiated agreement. Uh, so, you know, maybe we could aspire to similar heights. I agree mm. with you. So they're very high earners, but mm. there's also a diversity of workers within um, companies as well. So there's an organisation in the US that we've taken some inspiration from to try and call this meeting that we'll talk about. But the Tech Workers Coalition, they're organising not just with developers, but also with with outsourced sets of workers, yeah. for example, at Facebook, who might be running the cafeteria. Yeah, exactly. They're probably not earning 235000 yeah. No, they're usually a subcontractor. Yeah. Or like, dare I say it, Elon Musk is another good example because people who work in his factories, he, I mean, he loves the idea of busting those unions mm. and they have higher injury rates, all that kind of stuff. Um, so he's seen as this like modern billionaire, but in mm. fact, he's got a very 19th century appro- approach to unions, I think, which yeah. we should be it, concerned even about. Even reading his book, he says that he wants his, staff there seven days a week and if oh. they're not there seven days a week they're getting sloppy that goodness me it's crazy yeah he belongs in the 19th century with those techie turpies <laughs> i think i can kind of see him in uh, a top hat wearing those there's those great etchings of yes. like people flying around with kind of like robotic wings and they almost like a yes. kind of um a renaissance kind of yeah yeah, that, yeah. That's how I kind of monocle and top mm. hat yeah. he's like the guy out of monopoly <laughs> yeah yeah 
Um, so what's the aim of the, um, the session that you've got? It's um, Tech and Design Workers, Let's Get Organised. What, what would be um, a good outcome for people who come along to that? Yeah, so it's taking place on Wednesday next week at 6.30 up at Trades Hall, which is, uh, if you haven't been there, you, you, it's, you've got a treat in store for you, beautiful building on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street. Um, what's in store is we hope that it will be a get-together for anyone who's interested in these kinds of issues to talk about what's possible. So what is the role of unions traditionally? Um, what might be possible in the context of this industry, what kind of industrial issues arise that are common across the industry, but also what kinds of um, things outside of work might also be relevant. One of my concerns is that in um, general, we have uh, not enough organisations, I think, in civil society who are raising these issues with expertise and um, in a compelling way. And I think workers have interesting things to say about how technology works and to, con- to contribute to those debates. And they're better off doing it as a group rather than in as individuals. So I think that's part of it. I take a lot of heart from, for example, at Google, there were a bunch of employees who wrote to their CEO and said, we don't want to have this company participate in a project with the Pentagon. You might have seen where uh, the Pentagon is using their AI to read drone images for military purposes. And I find that really exciting because, again, there's this traditional view that tech workers are overpaid, under political, whatever. In fact, that's not true at all. They're switched on, they know what's going on. So we can learn from that and we can, um, I think that they're a voice that people want to hear from and it doesn't have to just be about industrial issues. It it is important that that's something that we talk about, but, you know, that there's broader possibilities in how um, workers as a group might contribute to public discussions about technology. Mm. There was a, a thing I saw recently about, um, I mean, you did raise that um, union membership is in decline, but also the diversity of um, membership is in decline. Mm-hmm. H- how can something like this kind of address that? Because I, you know, from a, uh, a familiar story point of view, you don't see um, tech workers and design workers as your typical union member. Yeah. Um, do you think it might help with that? I mean, diversity and, and kind of like without endorsing it, like a strong union movement is a diverse movement mm. and like, you know, a broad family and Absolutely. lots of points of view. So. Yeah, it's interesting. So one of my friends who's a labour organiser, she posted a, um, a labour researcher, I should say, she posted a graph talking about what the average union member looks like. And in fact, the average union member is in a professional or managerial even role yeah, right. and is white collar. There's someone like me. I'm mm. a lawyer who uh, works in a law firm and I'm a union member. That's mm. quite common. And mm. I like to think of myself as the average unionist, even though I, <laughs> I'm not wearing a hard hat and, um, and high vis. And so I do think the dynamic of unionism is changing to mm. meet the um, way in which the working people of Australia is also are also changing. So I do think we, um, when we talk about diversity, it's also important to remember that lots of workers work in white collar professions and, you know, people like nurses mm. and teachers and obviously designers or lawyers, whatever it is. Uh, mm. So that's a form of diversity as well that probably most people don't associate with the union movement. But of course, I want to see people uh, who make the union movement strong by contributing alternative perspectives that have skills that can also collaborate with other people in the union movement who who um, might want to make use of technology, for example, to build uh, a big like set of neurons, a brain of um, the, the left and the, the labour movement that can be effective at meeting the challenges of a 21st century society and adapting, finding new ways to use technology to empower other unions as well as I think a, an mm. aim that's worthwhile in this context. And that comes from the kind of diversity that you talk about. So absolutely, I agree. A diverse mm. union movement is a strong one um, and that diversity can take lots of forms. Mm. If you're interested, um, there is an Eventbrite um, page up 
um, we will um, put that out there um, as well. But um, yeah, it definitely sounds really interesting. Um, and for people who haven't kind of thought about um, where their business is going or how their ideas are being represented um, in civil society, either politically or through the leadership of their business or what have you, mm-hmm. probably a good thing to have a think about. And Please get do down come to. along. Thanks for coming in tonight, Lizzie. Thanks was, so um, much for having me. Just a few minutes left, um, but there are a couple of things that are interesting. Um, Dan, what's going on with Mr Hawking? Uh, So Stephen Hawking's uh, internment service is scheduled to take place at Westminster Abbey and uh, people who, and it's open for everyone, and uh, when asked for a date of birth, the chart runs to 2038. And it's not a typo, it's uh, for people who aren't born yet or time travellers, basically. Um, he's, uh, Stephen Hawking believed that time travel to the past was theoretically possible, um, so he's opened up his uh, service to uh, time travellers, mm. which is not unlike a party he once set up and later sent out the invitations, hoping to entice time travellers to his party. Um yeah, uh, to prove that time travel was possible. I wonder if Stephen Hawking might actually get resurrected in the future and travel back and listen to this particular show. I hope so. That would, that would be great. Yeah. Stephen, if you're listening tonight, um, uh, we really enjoyed your book. Or maybe uh, someone goes back to, you know, 2008, sends him forward just to listen to it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, that's great. Uh, um, it's good to see um, there's a sense of humour um, ar- around um, this particular point in time um, for Stephen. Yes. Um, another thing that is wonderfully weird is um, there's been a lot of uh, little, I guess, miniature um, flying machines that have been um, um, getting around and it's not too hard to get them to work and it's not too hard to get them to take off and to land and do all of those things. Um, but for a long time, the power source has been really hard to nail down. Um, there's a great piece in Wired. Um, they may have solved it. Uh, there's a flying machine about as big as a uh, fly and it weighs as much as a toothpick and it's powered by lasers, um, which is amazing. Um, so... Uh, yeah, we'll put the video up. Um, that's all I really have yeah. to say about it. Looks uh, looks like we're going to get in swarms of insect uh, messengers of, as of late. Like you'll be able to skywrite in the sky with uh, swarms of miniature flying robots just with a laser pointer. Mm. Write it out in the sky and have this uh, swarm come and say something. It'd be rad. It's um, the laser has to be around seven feet, um, or within seven feet uh, from the robot, um, in order to give it power. So, um, it's kind of it's broken free from the wires, but it's not um, uh, permanently free of, uh, of a power device. Just wishful thinking on my part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you can get your lasers up there, you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. But um, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Um, thanks to our guest tonight. Uh, it was really good to have a chat to Brooke and to Lizzie. Um, and thanks to you uh, for listening tonight. Um, I hope you're having a good night and you're warm and dry uh, wherever you are, um, especially you, Stephen Hawking. Um, we've been bought into it. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday evening with uh, a rotating bunch of humans. Up next is Anthony Carew with the International Pop Underground, which is always an awesome show. So stick around. We'll see you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.